Well, I hope you're all at John chapter 4, and we continue within this chapter as Jesus moves his way from the southern region of Judea, making his way through Samaria where he spent two days and saw God do an incredible work amongst the people of Samaria. But after two days, he now has ventured into the region of Galilee, where Jerusalem is located, uh, goes to Capernaum, and finally settles in a city called Cana. And while there in Cana, he is sought out by a nobleman whose son is gravely ill to the point of death and implores Jesus to come with him back to Capernaum to heal his son. And Jesus simply tells him to go his way, for his son is healed. This entire chapter is about faith. It's about belief. It's one thing to say that we believe in God. It's another thing to act upon that belief, to truly substantiate the fact that we believe what we say we believe. A belief isn't qualified unless it is acted upon. And we are going to see a pattern unfold before us. As we did with the Samaritan woman, we are going to see a pattern where Jesus, through challenging circumstances, brings this nobleman to faith in Him. And we find that having faith in God for not only the individuals of the Scriptures, but for us today can be a very difficult prospect. Putting our trust in God and truly believing God and the promises that He has made towards us and trusting in those promises and allowing those promises to sustain us day by day. This whole chapter is about faith. John wrote this gospel that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing in Him you would have eternal life. But belief requires faith. And then that faith truly is demonstrated by our actions. Just this week, as I was ramping up for today, I was driving home, and on my way home, I got stuck in road construction. What a novelty for here in Illinois to get stuck at road construction. And they were doing something somewhere, and everything was blocked off, and I was just sitting there, my life diminishing before me as I waited in traffic, hopefully thinking that I'd be home sometime this week. But while I was there waiting in traffic, I saw one of the coolest things. And sometimes it amazes me the career paths that people choose and the talents that they have to fulfill those career paths. I was sitting there in my car, and as they were working on the telephone lines next to the road, these telephone lines were still elevated, and they were elevated by wooden posts. And these individuals, somehow, some way got the job that their job was to shimmy up those poles and to fix the top. Now, I thought we had cranes for that. I I thought that there was other equipment that maybe OSHA wouldn't allow us to do those things anymore. But these guys did it like they were Spider-Man. I was absolutely amazed. They took this harness, whipped it around the pole. They had spikes on their feet, and they leaned back into the harness, and they shimmied up those poles like it was nothing. 
Absolutely nothing. 40 feet in the air. No big deal. I'm just going to lean back into this harness. I got my spikes into the wood and I'm going to fix this electrical wire with 20,000 volts. <laughs> talk about, uh, talk about crazy. And as I was watching this individual, I said, this must be one of the most faith-driven careers I've ever seen. Everything that that man was doing was counterintuitive to what you would think you would need to do in that kind of situation. I don't know about you, but if I got up to 40 feet in the air, what my natural inclination would be to do is to grab the pole, right? Grab it. But I can imagine that just one splinterly slide down would quickly remind me that that's not the way to do it. No, this individual, to do it successfully, had to use this harness, wrap it around himself in the pole, and lean back on the harness. What I'm going to do to be safe is I'm going to push myself away from this steady pole. Nuts. Okay? That's crazy. Talk about faith. You have to have faith in that harness. You have to have faith in the spikes that, you're, that are on your shoe. You're 40 feet. That's all it takes. One fall from 40 feet and you are a goner. You better be right with God. <laughs> because if you fall, that's it. And I started to think as I was watching this individual that, you know, that individual is showing me more faith than a lot of Christians have in God. Do you know a lot of Christians have a really difficult time trusting God? Oh, they believe God. They believe in God. But they don't believe God enough to hold fast to His promises and to lean on Him and the promises that He has made towards you and I within the Scriptures and to trust those promises to sustain us through the week, through our life here on this earth. And we struggle with this as Christians because often it is counterintuitive to trust God. I think of that funny story about the man who got too close to the edge of the Grand Canyon, slipped off, he was hanging onto a branch for dear life, and he cries out, he goes, is there anybody up there? Please help me, save me. And God, in his grace and sovereignty, yells back down to him and says, no problem, just let go, I've got you. Trust me. The guy hanging from the branch pauses for a moment. Is there anybody else up there? (laughs) It's hard to trust God, isn't it? But see, to truly walk with God and to rely on His promises, God often has to bring about faith within our life to do so. And the tools that He uses to bring about that faith are His Word and difficult circumstances. If I were to boil it down to two things, it would be His Word and difficult circumstances in our life. And the way that our faith develops is simply by exercising it, relying on it. Not only relying on the faith that we place in Jesus Christ and Him alone for our salvation, but then as we continue as believers, putting our faith and trust in Christ. And this individual, a nobleman who we will be introduced to this morning, would have never sought out Jesus if it wouldn't have been for a crisis in his life. His child was dying. And as a result, he sought out the Lord. 
Well, let's pick it up in verse 43 and take a look at what Jesus did in this man's life to bring about this belief in him. Now, after the two days he departed from there and went into Galilee, after two days being in Samaria, he left, finally arrived in his destination of Galilee, the northern section of Israel. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he made the water into wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come over to Judea, out of Judea, excuse me, into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And the nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. And then he inquired of the hour when he got better. And they said to him yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. Uh, And he himself believed, and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. A nobleman. A nobleman was a royal official. He was one that was in service to the king. And that king he would have been in service to was Antipas. Now that may not ring a bell with you, Herod Antipas. His father was Herod the Great, the one responsible for the death of the children during the birth of Christ the Messiah. This nobleman, in service to the king, obviously held a position of prestige and power. He undoubtedly had access to all of the modern medical uh, treatments that were available, the doctors of the highest quality and caliber, and yet... All of them found themselves insufficient, and he pursues out Jesus. Now, geographically speaking, within our text, we kind of miss what lengths the nobleman went to to get to Jesus. We know that the son is in Capernaum, and we know that the nobleman came from Capernaum to Cana. But Capernaum was not the city in which noblemen lived. Noblemen lived in the city of Tiberias. So the nobleman who served King Antipas in Tiberias, and let me give you a little visual aid, if this was the Sea of Galilee, Tiberias would have been right here. To get to Capernaum, he would have had to gone 13 miles across the Sea of Galilee with his sick son. He went there undoubtedly because that's where Jesus had reportedly been. That was his home base of operation. But when he got to Capernaum, he found out that Jesus was not there. He was down in Cana. So he traveled from Capernaum 20 miles up to Cana to find Jesus. A total of 33 miles by boat and by foot, most likely, to seek out Jesus for the healing of his son. 
Now, anyone who is a parent here can truly identify with this nobleman. He's exhausted all possibilities. The only hope for his son who is dying is this miracle worker that he hears of in Capernaum. And he is willing to go 13 miles by boat with his sick child. And when he, once he gets there, instead of being discouraged by the fact that Jesus isn't there, he then travels north another 20 miles to find him in Cana. And when he gets there, he implores him. He begs Jesus to come and to heal his child. As a parent, I can understand that. What lengths would we go to to find help for our suffering children? What lengths would we go to to help them ease the pain, the suffering, or to possibly save their life? This was a desperate situation. And we will see that God allowed this to happen because this was the only thing that was going to get this nobleman's attention. That God allowed it to take place. He allowed it to happen. And after traveling 33 miles, finding Jesus in Cana, where all had speculated and looked to him as an individual who was able to perform great signs and wonders, he finds the response from Jesus, not that of welcoming, but also almost of resisting. Unless you people, verse 48, see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now notice with me that Jesus in verse 44 said that a prophet has no honor in his own country. But then it goes on to state that the Galileans received him. It almost appears to be a contradiction. Well, it's not because the reception that the Galileans gave Jesus was that they believed in what he could do. But they didn't believe in Him. They didn't embrace Him as Messiah. They didn't embrace Him as the Savior of the world, as the Lord of their lives. He was simply there and they believed that He could perform signs and wonders. Signs were used by Jesus to point to Himself as Messiah. Wonders, the Greek word there is used to display what God is capable of doing. So signs pointed to Jesus to confirm who he was. Wonders were to show the people what his abilities were. Now, signs and wonders can be deceiving. We know that in the last days, one will come on this earth performing lying signs and wonders, pointing to himself, supposedly displaying a power through the wonders. And Jesus said that all you are looking for is a show, I am simply here to entertain you. I am simply here to do your bidding, to correct your woes. But you have no, no heart for me. You have no desire for me. You are not looking to me for salvation. You're not acknowledging me as your king. You are simply asking me to perform. And so this man, in his state of desperation, moves 33 miles at that time of year, which was extremely hot, to seek out Jesus to save his son. The only reason he would do what he did was to save his son. That's what motivated him. Hope motivated him. This is my last resort. This is it. After this, there is no hope for my child. 
You know, I'm often asked why bad things happen to good people or why terrible things happen to godly people. Well, I like what one theologian says, first show me a good person and then I'll try to explain why bad things happen to them. There are no good people. But why does God allow terrible things to happen to godly people? He does so to draw us closer to Him. 1 Peter tells us, 1 Peter 1.5, as Peter wrote to those who were dispersed amongst the Gentile nations, he says, I see that, as need be, God has allowed you to fall into various trials. As need be. God uses trials in our lives to draw us closer to Him. Because let's be honest, when things are going good, we have a reluctancy to call on God. We have a reluctancy to be dependent on God. We have a reluctancy to follow God because things are good. And that's the problem with so many in America today. For them, things are good. I really have no need for God. But as soon as things get bad is when people will cry out to God. That's why it is not shocking to me that many people come to Christ in times of crisis. During lingering health issues, economic downturns, relationship breakups or divorce, death of a loved one, or even the downturn of our nation. These things drive people to Christ. Difficult times drive people to Jesus Christ. I think of Jonah, one of my favorite Old Testament books, Jonah chapter 1 verse 5. As they are on the sea, God stirs up a storm and it is a tremendous storm. And it says that each of the mariners on the boat, because of their fear, began to pray to their own gods to calm the storm, to see them through, to save their life. And the only one on the ship that wasn't praying was Jonah in the bowels of the ship. He was sleeping. And one of the mariners found him and said, cry out to your God that he would spare us. And Jonah said to him, throw me over. I'm not going to God. No way. It wasn't until Jonah was thrown over, swallowed by a great fish, and truly down in the mouth. Okay, you know, yeah, that's, we're going to scratch that one off. That one didn't work there. It was only when he was... <laughs> it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. It was only at that time when he found himself at the lowest point that what did Jonah finally do? Cry out to God. I think of David in Psalm 119.67. He says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. God, why things were going good, you weren't even in my radar, David is saying. But as soon as things got difficult is when I came back to your word. As one says, faith is idle when circumstances are right. Only when they are adverse is one's faith in God exercised. Faith, like a muscle, grows strong and supple with exercise. And often for us, it takes difficult circumstances before we will exercise our faith and trust in God. And that's what he is doing with this nobleman. He is taking these adverse circumstances... And yet, the nobleman at his point of desperation doesn't understand that Jesus is in control of everything. Jesus has got it all worked out. Remember, the nobleman 
is asking just for the life of his son. But Jesus is interested in the life of the nobleman and his whole family. Sometimes God has to bring very unusual circumstances into our lives before we will finally acknowledge him. I think of the story that I read some time ago about an old-time Western preacher. He was in the area of New Mexico and Arizona, and he would travel around from town to town to town. And there was this one farmer that continuously was asked by the townspeople and himself to come to church, but this farmer had absolutely no desire to go to church whatsoever. Really didn't have any need for God. Didn't really want to acknowledge God in any way, shape, or form. And then one day, something happened. This farmer had three sons, John, James, and Sam. I guess he ran out of J names. And one day, Sam was outside working, and he was bit by a rattlesnake. And as he was in the doctor's office there in town, the pastor was called and asked to pray over him. And the pastor prayed this incredibly unique prayer. And I'd like to read it verbatim for you. He stated this, as the pastor was praying for Sam, who had just been bitten by a rattlesnake. O wise and righteous father, the pastor said, praying over the boy, we thank thee that in thy wisdom thou didst send this rattlesnake to bite Sam. He's never been inside the church, and it's doubtful that he uh, has in all of his time ever prayed or acknowledged thy existence. Now we trust that this experience will be a valuable lesson to him and will lead him to his genuine repentance. And now, O Father, wilt thou send another rattlesnake to bite Jim? And another to bite John? And another really big one to bite the old man? For many years we have done everything we know to get them into turn to thee, but all was in vain. It seems, therefore, that what all of our combined efforts could not do, this rattlesnake has done. We thus conclude that the only thing that will do this family any real good is a rattlesnake. So, so Lord, send us bigger and better rattlesnakes. Amen. I think that we can understand that. There are just some people who are extremely stubborn and won't call on God unless difficult things happen. And this nobleman particularly would have never gone to God unless these difficult circumstances were to happen. And maybe that's happening in your life today. Maybe God's trying to get your attention. Maybe difficult times have come. And you don't understand why. You're, you're walking with God. You've given your life to God. But wait a minute. Something's not happening right. Maybe God is trying to get your attention. So this nobleman seeks him out after 33 miles of wandering, simply believing in a power that possibly could be available. Look at verse 48 with me. Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Uh, The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Sometimes we wonder why God answers our prayers in the manner that he does. This I would take for granted to be one of the most unusual responses to this individual. 
It, it's something that this individual, after traveling 33 miles, would not want to hear. It's almost a reproof, a rebuke, if you will. As this nobleman is pleading for his son's life, Jesus says, Oh man, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's not what he wanted to hear. And notice the nobleman's response. He comes back with almost a charge. He says, Sir! Exclamation point at the end of the sentence. Come down before my child dies. There's an urgency. You need to come now. Why do you think the nobleman approached Jesus in such a manner? Because that's what he was used to. He was used to giving orders. He was used to being in charge. He was used to being in control of circumstances. He was used to being the final authority. And I love the fact that Jesus will not submit to his authority, but says, if you will listen to me and do what I say, if you will submit yourself to my authority, go your way. As Chuck Swindoll said, it's very reminiscent of the charming British expression, go you off then, carry on. From Jesus' perspective, there was something happening in the nobleman that the nobleman wasn't even aware of. Jesus knew that his response was exactly what the nobleman needed to hear but not wanted to hear. How many times do we pray and the answers we get are what we need to hear but not what we want to hear? We cry out to God and we ask for an answer to our prayer. And I will tell you, I believe God answers His children's prayers. But I want to preface this by saying, or put a qualifying statement, He doesn't always answer the way we would want Him to answer. As one individual said that God often answers in one of three ways. Yes, which is usually acceptable and favorable by all who are praying certain things. Or he says no, which is objectionable to most people who pray things. And yet no is just equally as definitive of God's will as yes, isn't it? But the one that so many Christians hate is the one wait. Where it seems like God is silent, but he's just simply saying, wait, hold on. I'm working everything out. I'm bringing everything together. I'm going to do something that's going to blow your mind. In fact, I can't even tell you right now because you drop dead. So I got to have you wait. You're in a holding pattern. You're waiting until I can perfectly bring things about the way I want to fulfill this prayer. And that's very difficult for us, isn't it? Because we like to be in control. You know, I will tell you, I hate driving in the passenger seat of a car. I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter who's driving, so no one take this personally. But I have a tendency to react before the driver does. I start slamming on a brake that is non-existent. I have come to the conclusion I may not be the one to teach my daughter how to drive. Though I do believe it might bring me closer to God than I've ever been before. But I, I will, I'll throw my hands up on the dashboard and just, just like this. I was driving with someone the other day and uh, they were coming up to a stop sign. We were in the middle of a conversation or a stoplight, I should say. We were in the middle of a uh, conversation and he got right up on someone's rear end and then slammed on his brakes. And I'm like, oh Lord, if there's any sin, forgive me now in Jesus' name. You know, I'm going home. And then he apologized profusely, and then he goes on to proceed to tell me that, yeah, it's kind of difficult because I'm legally blind in my left eye. I'm like, Lord, heal him now in the name of Jesus. 
I like to be in control. People like to be in control. The noblemen like to be in control, and what Jesus needed to do was bring him out of that control. And in the wake of the request from Jesus, he complies. It says here very clearly that he believed now he, the word of God. So point number one, God will often use difficult times to draw us closer to him. Point number two is God always answers prayer, but he often doesn't offer, uh, answer them the way we would expect. The belief was in a power, that's why he sought out Jesus. Now the belief is in his word. And this man then begins to proceed home. But we're going to notice that he didn't proceed right away. He delayed. He delayed. And let me show you why I believe that. One commentator, Barton, wrote this. The government official not only believed that Jesus could heal, he also obeyed Jesus by returning home, thus truly demonstrating his faith. It isn't enough for us to say that we believe that Jesus can take care of our problems. We need to act as if he can. We also need to leave the means, ways, and timing up to him. When we pray about a need or a problem, we should live as though we believe Jesus can do what he says. We don't know how he's going to answer. We don't know how he's going to fulfill it. That's up to his sovereign grace. But we know he can, and therefore I'll trust that. So the nobleman now proceeds back simply on the basis of the word of Jesus. He says, go your way, your son lives. The nobleman then, I believe, waits until the next day to go home. Because by foot, that 20-mile journey back to Capernaum would have only taken five hours by foot, two hours by horse. And we know that Jesus healed him, I believe it says, at the seventh hour, which we know to be one in the afternoon. Now, did he delay there in Cana because it was too hot to travel back? Possibly. Or did he trust enough of what Jesus said? My son lives, that's good enough, that's all I need to hear. I'll just wait and trust you. Either way, this man was willing to go back without Jesus accompanying him and return 20 miles. Now think of the faith that's required there, the trust in what Jesus had just said. Your son is dying. Time is of the essence. Jesus has given you a verbal promise. You can either act upon that promise or continue to implore or beg him to physically come with you And yet he decided to act upon what Jesus said. And he returned. Check check this out with me in verse 51. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. And then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, what what did they say to him? Yesterday. He waited. He delayed. For whatever purpose, he delayed and returned back to Capernaum. Yesterday, at the seventh hour, one in the afternoon, his fever left him. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And now notice, he himself believed and his whole household. Three times the same Greek word is used for believe. 
Now, the uniqueness of the three occurrences of this word is what the word belief is attached to. First, it's attached to signs and wonders. Secondly, it's attached to the word. Here, it's attached to nothing. And scholars and commentators agree it was at this moment that the man put his faith and trust not in the power that Jesus could demonstrate, not even in the word that Jesus has promised, but in Jesus himself. Through this one act, the nobleman discovered that Jesus was omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. And only God could reflect those three things. For he was all-powerful. From a distance he healed at the exact hour that he healed. He was omnipotent. He knew what this nobleman needed even before the nobleman came to him. And he was omnipresent. He was everywhere. He wasn't bound by distance. And as a result, this individual places his trust in Jesus. Not only him, but his whole household. This nobleman simply came because his son was dying. Adverse circumstances drove him to Jesus. He asked Jesus. He got an answer. Not the one he expected, but he got an answer. And our third principle that we have to understand is that here we see that Jesus took this difficult situation to develop this man's faith. And as a result, this again was the second sign in John writing this, pointing to who Jesus actually is, that we may know that he is the Son of God, did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. As a Christian, I have to understand that God is interested in developing my faith and trust. Now let me clarify that because I think it's important. I am not talking about the amount of faith that I feel that I can muster. I am not talking about the quality or the intensity of the faith that I project. The faith that I am speaking of comes by understanding the one who I am placing the faith within. It is not about my faith. It is not having faith in faith alone. Faith is only as good as the object that it is placed upon. And what I am telling you, what God is interested in doing, is He is interested in us trusting Him in even a deeper and more mature, would be a word that I would use, way, and trust Him wholeheartedly. That not only has he made promises to you and I, but he is perfectly capable of performing the promises in which he has made. So he wants you to trust him. So the very first way that our faith is developed is by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God. The word of God initially drives us to Jesus Christ for salvation. I read the Bible now and my faith continues to increase in Him because I read of all the accounts and the events and everything that Jesus has promised and God has promised to me through His Word. So faith comes by the Word of God, number one. Number two, faith comes by exercising it. We must act upon our faith, meaning that if we say we really believe it, we must act as if we really believe it to exercise that faith. One old preacher from Scotland, McEwen, wrote this. The way to increase faith is to exercise faith. 
And the true parent of perfect faith is the experiencing of blessing that comes from the crudest, rudest, narrowest, blindest, feeblest faith that man can exercise. Trust him as you can. Do not be afraid of inadequate conceptions of or a feeble grasp. Trust him as you can, and he will give you so much more than you expected that you will trust him even more. And that is the truth. As we see God working in our lives, as we see God be faithful to fulfill the promises that he has made to us, to sustain us as we walk with him here on this earth, it's easier to trust him in the future once again, isn't it? You can look back and say, you know what? God was faithful to fulfill the promise that he has made to me back then. He'll do it now. Now, again, all of this is subjected to the will of God. All of this is subjected to his sovereignty. This isn't my faith orchestrating and moving God to fulfill my desires, my pleasure. What I am talking about is submitting to his will, trusting him to fulfill things perfectly and act accordingly to his sovereign will for my personal life. But we must exercise that which we truly believe. In conclusion to this morning, three things that we have learned. Number one, God will use difficult times in our lives to draw us to him. And if you walk with the Lord any length of time, you will realize that. Have you realized that God uses difficult times to draw us close to him, right? Raise your hand if you realize that. Okay, you who haven't raised your hand, it's still coming. <laughs> uh, trust me, it's coming. Number two, God will answer prayer, but he may not answer it the way you want him to. He'll answer it, but he may not answer it the way you want it to. And God is interested in developing our faith that we would trust him more wholly and completely for everything. It is not enough to believe in what Jesus can do. It is not enough to simply believe even what Jesus says. We must believe in who Jesus is. He is the sovereign God, the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God, the one who has come to die for the sins of the world, and that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We must believe that Jesus is God, and truly understand that he is the only way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This nobleman started out simply believing in the power of God. The power. That there's this power out there. And some now have generically labeled it God. It's just a power. It has no identity, no character, no demand upon their personal life. There's a power that I can wield and use for my purposes. That's what this nobleman believed in. That there was a power that maybe he could tap into to heal his son. But that then went to the promise when he began to understand Jesus and a promise was made to him, go your way, carry on, your son lives. He believed the word of the Lord. But it wasn't until he went home to see that promise perfectly fulfilled, showing the omnipotence, the omniscience, and the omnipresence of Christ, that he was God and is God today. It's not enough to believe in a power. It's not enough just to believe in a word or such. We must put our faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ and him alone for our salvation. Amen?